Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host today, Matt Smith. Today we'll be focusing on the rural, regional areas of India, looking at how they manage their natural resources and how interactions with the state can affect this. My guest today is Dr. Harry Fisher, fourth in a long line of Harry Fishers, Associate Lecturer in the Department of Social Inquiry at La Trobe University and a New Generation Network Fellow at the Australian India Institute. Thank you for joining me, Harry. Well, thank you very much. All right, so you're, you're a human geographer. Explain to me the area that you're working in uh, of India. What's it like there and, and what drew you to that place? So I'm working in an area uh, known as the Kangra district. It's in the state of Himachal Pradesh in northern India, in the Himalayan region. And I first visited Himachal Pradesh in 2007 when I was a backpacker in India, and I just fell in love with the uh, region. Mm. Now, I got the chance to return in 2009 as a master's student. I was looking at environmental politics in the area. And so it just made sense that I would do my doctoral dissertation in the same region. So what's the area like and, and how did the people live there? Is it, is it a simple way of life? Is it uh, mountainous? Tell me about the, the exact people. Yeah, well, the Congre district is interesting. It's uh, sort of, um, it's in the middle Himalayas. It's actually relatively flat, which is surprising, but it has a large um, mountain backdrop, uh, very dramatic, very high mountains. But the Congre district itself is more of a fertile plain area. It's actually relatively developed as far as rural India goes. I think uh, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, it would have felt very different. But today, there's a lot of roads, a lot of connectivity to the outside world, to the rest of India. And... I think there's a diversity of livelihoods there. A lot of people are doing agriculture, but also a lot of off-farm employment as well. Mm. Um, traditionally, people would sustain themselves on their harvest from year to year. It was a subsistence economy. This would be uh, 50 year years ago or more. Most people would live off of what they were producing. Uh, today, not so much. People still derive a substantial proportion of their food from what they produce, but uh, a lot of it they also purchase through government subsidies and government programs and also processed food that they may buy on the market. Mm, so a lot of rice and things like that coming in from government subsidies. Yes, yeah. yes. There's pretty generous government subsidies for rice. Now, people produce mainly rice themselves and also wheat. So you've been looking at how the water management system is done there. Is that, is that broadly the, what you've been looking at? Yeah, well, I've done research on a variety of themes in the area, yeah. but uh, one of the things I have looked extensively at is the management of water resources. Yeah. I did my dissertation on local democracy, basically decision-making processes happening in the village council around various kinds of uh, development and natural resource management interventions. I've also looked a bit at forest management. Mm. Um, so these are the main themes I've, I've looked at. And I, I guess the district would be at the stage where they're going to get a lot of outside Maybe interference isn't the right word, but there's there's going to be a lot of inter interaction with outside levels of government for these sort of issues, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's actually the case across India. The post-colonial state and also the, the colonial state before it had a lot of interest in maintaining the governance of various kinds of natural resources. So that's central to basically how the state functions in these rural regions. And there can be tensions in that. 
since a lot of communities have existing management systems that don't necessarily align with state uh, aspirations and interventions. Mm -hmm. So is that the case that's been happening with water management then? The water uh, management system in Congra is relatively unique. In a word, no, I don't sense a strong amount of conflict as you might have seen in other kinds of resources like forests. Mm. The water systems in Congra, uh, particularly around irrigation, are built around uh, basically systems of irrigation canals, which are known as cools. Cools have been in existence for the past several hundred years. One thing I looked at in my research is increasingly over the past uh, 20 or 30 years, and even longer than that, but to a lesser degree, uh, state institutions have intervened in the management of these systems in various ways. Yeah, yeah. So, so explain the system to me. It's like a canal, you say, but is it a specific Yeah, or well, the system is really, really very unique. So if you think about the topographies and the landscape of the Congre district, mostly rolling hills. They're not sharp mountain peaks like other parts of the Himalaya, but there definitely is a topography uh, happening here. And there are rivers. They're glacially fed, and water trickles down in the summertime from the high mountain peaks down to the lowlands. So there's these earthen irrigation canals that feed off of these glacial streams, and the canals will then draw water from the rivers and then carry it across the landscape, and then it gets distributed across agricultural fields along the way. And a given cool system, this is a system of irrigation canals, may have many different channels that flow from the river, and they're typically managed together as part of a, a communal effort. Okay, so so historically, if there's been a problem with the cool, everyone pulls together no matter what the interests and, and kind of works out how to fix it. Right, exactly. Well, so the thing is that these irrigation canals, they're basically earthen. They're just a simple technology. There's mm. nothing uh, highly technical about it. They just draw water from the rivers. And the earthen infrastructure, it's constantly subject to the pressure of water that flows through it. So the earthen walls will tumble in at times. Mm. Silt will you know, collect on the bottom and has to be scooped out. And there's vegetation along the canals along the way. And so these canals have to be managed every single year to ensure that they remain um, stable, to ensure that the water actually gets to the fields. Yeah, yeah. So originally that would have been a a community effort, but uh, now you'd be getting aspects of state intervention. Exactly. Well, so the cools are what are are known as a common pool resource. And Mm. what that means in effect is that they are a resource that depends on collective action. If someone takes too much water, that means that there's less water for everyone else. So there has to be a system whereby everyone agrees that they're going to take a certain amount of water to make sure that everyone gets enough. The other thing is there has to be a system of coordinated action to ensure that everyone will go out and maintain these cools every year. If uh, only one person or if only a few people did it, they obviously wouldn't be maintained. Now, traditionally, there was a system that was managed by uh, basically a water chief that would oversee all activities uh, related to irrigation management. As the economy in the area has shifted away from subsistence agriculture to various forms of wage labor and other Mm. kinds of employment activities, 
a lot of these older men that were once the water chiefs, their children, and in particular their sons, have elected not to take on the family tradition. And what that means is that some of these systems are no longer managed as they once were. People may still mobilize, they may still go out and try to protect the canals and to do the regular maintenance, but there isn't this central mobilizational energy that sort of ties these together. So one thing that I document in my research are the ways in which different kinds of state actors were then stepping in and starting to serve as a linchpin for these kinds of mobilizational activities. Is that a harmonious kind of arrangement that they've come to then? There are hundreds of cool regimes across the Congress district, so yeah. it's difficult to generalize. In some cases, the systems of collective action have just dissolved, and then the state steps in and says, well, they have to be managed. Um, this is central to our mandate of ensuring that agriculture happens here. And then they basically take over everything. What has also happened a lot is that communities have sensed the limitations of their own ability to continue to manage, as once was, and they've actually looked outside to a range of government uh, agencies to assist in different kinds of management efforts. They may assist in providing resources, do different kinds of infrastructural development, or various kinds of interventions that may uh, facilitate management. What is remarkable about the way this has happened is while the state in many sectors sort of imposes a particular agenda upon communities and communities don't necessarily like it, what is happening here rather is that communities are mobilizing from the ground up and they are asking different state bodies for specific kinds of support that may help these canals. And so that actually makes it harmonious. Not always harmonious, of course, but mm. uh, more often than not, it means that communities retain a great deal of discretion over what kinds of projects are being implemented. So where did the cool system come from then? Now, from what I've read, a lot of this actually diffused from other parts of the Himalayan region into this area as a sort of technological package. So people grow rice, they get the water together, mm. right? Basically, it's built around biophysical realities. In the pre-monsoon season, uh, there is very little water that falls from the sky. But it's the pre-monsoon season in which you have to plant your rice. So what they do is that they use these canals to irrigate the fields as standing water for planting rice earlier in the season before the monsoon comes. And then when the monsoon comes, there's enough water anyway. Mm. Why this is necessary is because the rice, it has to be harvested earlier in the fall. Because if you wait too late, then there's hail and other things that um, may actually damage your crop. So basically, it's a system that's built around the climate variabilities within this particular area. These technological systems diffused from Central Asia, and they were actually sponsored by a variety of um, pre-colonial rulers, which is actually quite fascinating. If you think of these systems as being, in many cases, many kilometers long, involving many different hectares of agricultural land across thousands of households often, these are immense systems that can often not be constructed by themselves. What has happened in a lot of these systems that is documented is they were actually sponsored by pre-colonial rulers, that they would put the capital up to mobilize laborers to basically build these large systems. And that became a form of political patronage. It was also a way for these old rulers 
known as rajas, that's a, the, the Hindi word for king, it was a way for these old rulers to sort of stake their claim across the landscape mm. by sponsoring these systems. If you look then in the colonial era, the colonial governance regimes understood that it was their way of taking control over the landscape by basically controlling water because water was so essential to agriculture. So the colonial regimes uh, during British times, they actually came and they codified the distribution of water between villages and the timing at which different communities may get the water during the season. And they actually wrote it down in these elaborate scripts that would govern who gets water at what time. And then this sort of proceeded into the post-colonial era. Uh, But throughout all of this, everyday management was basically controlled by local systems. These landscapes are way too complex for external interveners to actually ensure that water is managed effectively. So there was always this local system by which uh, people would manage themselves. So they're always a water chief. Wouldn't it, uh, from the state's perspective, though, just be easier to go, this is how it's going to work across the entire district and the cool system is then taken out of locals' hands. I mean, I'm not saying that that's the best way to do it, but that is a solution that you typically see, that it's just uniformly applied. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so that's one of the interesting things. The state has sort of a simplifying tendency in many sectors, and it creates these plans from above and tries to implement them. One of the very interesting things that we see in natural resource management around the globe is that these top-down efforts can be effective and necessary in certain kinds of situations, but quite often they are not. And one of the reasons that they are not is because you have local systems that are built around a central social and cultural logic that is within that society, Mm. that the top-down imposition doesn't necessarily work. Now, if you look at sectors like uh, forestry in India, there's been a long-standing recognition, and often a tension, but a long-standing recognition that you have to get communities to engage in the protection of resources. Unfortunately, in forestry, a lot of these interventions have not worked very well because there remains still too much top-down imposition. What I think makes sense in this context and what I've written about is that these landscapes are so topographically diverse, so many minute and locality-specific issues related to the flow of water in the landscape, that it's very difficult for any given bureaucrat who may oversee 20 or 30 different of these cool regimes to actually know what is necessary you know, around this specific bend, that particular curve, this mm. precipice, and whatever. So what that means is that the only way One of the only ways, I think, to effectively continue this management is to find channels to incorporate local knowledge of the landscape into project planning. And I think that's what's happening here. Yeah. Have you seen or come across any other instances where a a bottom-up approach would be helpful in, in natural resource management in that area? There are a lot of state attempts to do that. So one thing that's been tried for a long time is uh, joint forest management. Mm. That's something that has seen various kinds of uh, policy interventions throughout the years. Implementation has been very variable of that, unfortunately. But there are a number of documented instances where that has proven to be effective. Yeah. And by involving the locals in those kind of management techniques, you often get a a community vested interest. 
that's one of the aspirations, one of the reasons that they are um, pursued, is that when you look at a common pool resource, the ability to manage that resource, like I said, if any person takes too much, there's not enough for everyone else. The way to avert that, um, what is known as the tragedy of the commons, is for everyone to buy into the system, for everyone to have a stake in management. And so that's one of the crucial questions that we're facing in this present era is what kinds of interventions can we craft that ensure that local buy-in to make sure that resources are managed sustainably? But it, yes. it looks like in some ways, though, it's, it's going back to what they had. I mean, not with colonial uh-huh. overlookers, but this time the state. So you've got that overarching kind of body with vested interests in, in keeping it all ticking over. Yes, yes. So in some yes. ways, it's going back to that kind of model. I think so. And I think one of the things that this case has to tell us actually is about the role of the state in ensuring that common systems function. Uh, If you look at common pool research management theory, it's a very developed body of literature. This body of theory has really considered collective action to be largely, although not exclusively, a local affair that was done by these communities that have shared interests in making sure that resources were managed effectively. What I think this case tells us, though, is that the state still has a lot of roles to play in ensuring that um, this can be done effectively, to ensure that different actors involved may be coordinated, and to ensure that this continues during times of uh, socioeconomic transformation. All right then, Dr. Harry Fisher, thanks for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud, and please leave a review there and tell your friends about it. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.